0: My name is Adam Curtis, and I'm the, the curate here at Christ Church. And uh, we're starting today a new series in, uh, in, uh, in Micah, which is one of the minor, minor prophets. Um, and as we come to God's word, let's come in humility and in prayer. Our dearest God, King of kings and Lord of lords, we praise you that you do not leave us stumbling in the dark, but you speak to us. Your word is trustworthy and true. And we pray that as we read, meditate, hear, dwell on your word today. That by your spirit you might lead us and guide us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Please do keep Micah uh, open in front of you. It's page 1019 in the church Bibles. How bad do we think sin is? How bad do we think sin is? Because sometimes we can hear what God has to say in Scripture, and then we can do the reality of the thing He tells us not to do, and it doesn't really feel that bad. So, take all, all that we hear in Scripture about how we should be careful with our words um, not to insult or attack, about gossip. And yet, the act of, of, of gossip is quite fun especially if it's juicy. And it's quite interesting, isn't it? And we hear everything that that Scripture has to say against jealousy and against coveting. And, And we hear what it has to say quite strongly, and yet, how often do we spend just sitting in that sofa and just dreaming about a life we haven't got? Or walking down a street and dreaming about a house that we'd really like to live in? Or seeing a car go by and thinking, oh, how much I want to drive that car. And coveting and jealousy just seems to consume us. We hear all that scripture has to say, particularly here in Micah, very strongly against the worship of idols. or worshiping, something that is created over the creator. And yet, the practice of, of, of yoga and the Buddhist sort of meditation, there's something quite peaceful about that. There's something quite appealing about that. So how serious do we think sin is? How serious do we think it is to go and stand against the living word of God? And what does the Lord have to say to us today as we ponder that question, as we land here in the book of uh, of Micah? Well, chapter 1, Gives us a little bit of uh, a context. This is the word of the Lord, and it's spoken through Micah. Micah is a prophet. We hear about three kings here: Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So Micah is speaking to these kings, and he's he's speaking this prophecy in the time of these kings. Sorry, he's speaking this prophecy in a time of Israel's history. So the Jewish people, they've sort of lived under the glory days of the Jewish kings of David and of Solomon, and the kingdom is now divided. In fact, it has two sides. You have the much larger side, the northern kingdom, with ten tribes, and their capital is in uh, Jerusalem. And then you have the much, not Jerusalem, Samaria. Thankfully, it says it there. (laughs) Then you have the much um, smaller kingdom in the south, uh, with just two tribes, and their capital is uh, Jerusalem. And these three kings that Micah is speaking in the time of are all Jerusalem kings, northern kings. So this prophecy of a time when the nation is divided into two, and Micah is is, is definitely in the south and speaking to the south. And what does this southern prophet, what does he have to say? Well, let's look down, verse 2. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth and all who are in it. That the sovereign Lord may witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. The Lord is seated on his holy throne, in his holy temple, a holy temple which the earthly temple in Jerusalem is but a shadow of. He is seated there and he has come to bring an accusation, an accusation which he wants the whole world to hear. And he has come to act as a witness. A witness, you know, a legal proceedings they come and they share about things they've seen, things they've heard. Things they've experienced, things they've known. Imagine that you are sat in the court, and the one who comes to speak as the witness is the Lord of all. And you were sat in that court right there, and that is the witness. How would that make you feel? How would you react to that? Like, like a, a sense of terror, a sense of being overwhelmed, a sense of being made with dread that the one who sees or knows or comprehends all and has seen and known and comprehends all that you have done stands there as the witness. But this, uh, this witness in verse 2 then progresses in verse 3. Because actually in verse 2 we're told, hear the accusations. In verse 3 we're told, look, look, and see that the witness is now come down. The witness has now become the judge. And, we, and, and and hear what this judge has come to do, look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the high places of the earth. The high places of the earth, the mountains. You look at the mountains, you look at the Alps, you look at them, and they're so impressive, and they're so strong, and they're so mighty. And we just stand in awe at them. And here we have an image of the Lord God using the mountains as steps so that he can come and descend among us. And as he treads on the mountains and uses them as steps, the mountains, we are told, those images of strength, they melt. They melt like wax melts before a fire. They melt down. Because the presence of the Lord has come. And why does he come? Why does he come? Well, verse 5, because of, the, of Jacob's transgressions. Now, it's significant here that, that Micah uses Jacob's transgressions. Jacob is one of the patriarchs of Israel, one of the early church fathers, um, not church fathers, sorry, of Israel's fathers. And thus using that language of Jacob, he's using the language of the twelve tribes. So he's not using the language of the ten tribes and the two tribes, he's using the language of the twelve tribes. So this, he's coming and he's speaking about the transgressions of the twelve, not just of the south or the north, but the sin of the south and the sin of the north. And what are these sins? That the Lord God is acting as witness against, that the Lord God is coming down to judge... What are these transgressions? Well, as we see as we go through uh, Micah, they're quite broad. We, we hear about uh, the Lord speaking against fevery, against coveting, against witchcraft, against dis- the, the rich and powerful using dishonest scales, against violence, about the powerful lying. We hear, in fact, a moral, political and religious corruption a corruption which is felt in the individuals, a corruption which is felt in the hierarchy of religious and political life. But here in chapter 1, it is only one sin which is zoomed in upon. Because Micah, he sort of has his eyeballs on Samaria, and he has his eyeballs upon their idol worship. And we read in verse 6, Micah eyeballing Samaria. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Samaria, which is the great hope of the ten tribes of the north. Samaria, which is meant to be seen as so strong Will be thrown down. Its it, it stones will be thrown everywhere, and it will become empty, and it will just be used as a vineyard. And these images, which they have filled with their temples of idols, from taken from other nations, will they will be crushed, and they will be thrown down, because no created thing stands above our creator. We then get what I think is a, a strange sort of phrase at the end of verse 7. But let's think about it for a moment. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, this is 7 verse B, all the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. And I think this is Micah, this is the Lord God, so speaking in a situation that at this, Samara, some, uh, this temple in Samaria filled of idols, there would, been, there would have been prostitutes there. Temple worshiping sort of prostitutes. And the idea is, you came, you paid those prostitutes, and that was almost seen as an act of, of worship to the Lord in this, in this, in this uh, perverse sort of uh, system. And then that money, which these prostitutes probably had been trafficked there, that money would have been used to buy idols. And so you have this image here of. Uh, since they gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as that temple is destroyed, those who plunder it will take those idols and they will sell those idols, and they themselves will continue this, this, this cycle of vice and go and use it on prostitutes of their own. Because that's how, how 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 wicked it is that the wickedness just spirals and spirals and spirals. Because that is what Samaria has done. But but this image that we have of Samaria on the floor, well the, the the passage. Of Micah then continues because we're told, look at that, look what's going to happen. And then we're told to mourn. We're told to mourn. Look, look at look at Micah in verse 8 here. I will weep and I will wail. I'll go barefoot and I will go naked. I'll howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. Like the, the language of Micah's mourning over this sin. It is so deep. It cuts to the very core of who he is. And why is it so sort of cutting him so much when this is, a, this is a prophet of the South? You'd think on one level he'd be happy. Fine, let the North, let that Northern Kingdom. Who cares what happens to Scotland? Let that Northern Kingdom just go that way. But no, he's cut up. And why is he cut up? Verse 9... For her wound is incurable. It has come to Judea. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. The reality of this idol worship which has consumed Samaria, the reality is that you now find it in God's holy city. You now find it in God's holy temple. One of the kings who Micah is speaking against and prophesying in time of is Ahaz. And Ahaz was so impressed by some idols that he saw in Damascus that he came back to Jerusalem with sketches of those idols and got his workmen to build them in the holy temple. Because he thought that those idols were just so good compared to the living God, that in the living God's holy temple, they should be built the idols have infected Jerusalem. And Micah's response to how the idols have come and affected even the holy place of the temple in Jerusalem, Micah's response is to create a sense of hopelessness for the people. A hopelessness of this situation, to be overwhelmed by a sense of fear. And we see that in verses um, verses ten to fifteen. Here in verses ten to fifteen, we hear about a, a, a list of towns: Gath, Beth Othra. We hear, so hear about these list of towns, and if we were to look on a map, we would see that these these towns, that they are in um, the west of the southern kingdom, and they're sort of forming this twenty seven miles of stretch, and they're sort of in a wavy uh, line. And actually, each of these towns over sort of a 30-year period will get plundered and will get attacked and will get invaded. And then in 701 B.C., Assyria will drive through these towns and will come to the very gates of Jerusalem. So there are historical sort of significance to these places. And then we have Micah talking about these places and everything that's going to happen to them because of this sin. And actually, Micah in Hebrew is, is far cleverer sort of wordplay than our English um, uh, demonstrates. Now, I'm not particularly good at wordplay, but it'd be the sort of thing like be, be like, be like, lament if you're in London, cry if you're in Cardiff, despair if you're in Durham. Like, he's sort of taking attributes from these places, and he's linking it to their lamentation. we even given a bit of a hint of that in Beth Othra. We see that little D there. Beth Othra, roll in the dust... Beth Ofra means house of dust. So maybe a sort of better reading of it would be like, in dust town, roll in the dust. And we hear about in Shafir, which is called a pleasant and beautiful place, where it's almost be like the residents of Beutisberg pass by in shameful nakedness. And like Michael wants us to feel that hopelessness of this situation. And Lachish, he has particularly strong words for in verse uh, verse thirteen, you here live in Kish, harness the team of chariots. Basically, get out of there, run. You were the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Lakish, I think, is given sort of special sort of like mention here because Kish is one of these trading towns. A sort of central trading town, very well defended. And so lots of traders from other sort of nations worshiping idols would have come here. And Lakeish seems to be the place which has first been decided to worship these idols rather than the living God. And they have taken this and spread it to the rest of the southern kingdom. It's almost like how the, the Black Death, it arrived on this country on trading ships. And as it arrived in these places of trade, it spread. And the idol worship has arrived and now it is spread out. And that is why Micah wants them to mourn. Hear the accusations, see the consequences of sin and mourn it. Mourn it. And look here at the depth of his mourning in verse 16 here. Shave your heads in mourning for the children in whom you delight, make yourself as bald as, vulture, as a vulture for they will go from you into exile. Mourning is a fitting response. Shaving your head is a fitting response because Assyria is coming. That's what's being alluded to here, it hasn't been stated. Assyria is coming and when they come they will take the children of the southern kingdom and they will take them into exile. So mourn. Mourn for what you have done and the Consequences it will be it will have on your children. Mourn it. Those who you delight in are going to be taken. Mourn this. As we ponder Micah chapter 1, well, what is the Lord saying to us today? He's saying, Hear the accusations of sin, see the consequences of sin, and mourn the outcome of sin. Because this is a prophecy that is made to Jerusalem before it's happened, obviously. That's why it's a prophecy. It's a prophecy made to Jerusalem before the historical reality has happened. And this, this dread which this prophecy is invoking is meant to be there to wake them up. Wake up, you sleepers. Wake up, Jerusalem, to what you have done. Wake up to the seriousness of sin. And has it is a prophecy to wake them up, it is a prophecy to wake us up, to see the seriousness of sin. Because the reality is that worshipping the created thing over the creator, it might feel good, it might feel pleasing, other people might do it, to join in with it. Reality is it will lead to our destruction. The reality is That our words are daggers. That Jesus Christ turns the very understanding of murder and uses that to speak about our words as violence. And we should see the seriousness of our words. The seriousness of our violence. That through our words we tear down and rip down and destroy. That actually that has consequences. And those who commit them will be destroyed. There are consequences to coveting. The Lord God speaks powerfully against it, against jealousy. He he encourages that sense of being content in who you are and what you have. He doesn't want people to be living a constant sort of life, of, of yearning for something more, of giving up morality just to achieve something more, of giving up wealth just to get something more, of thinking that this world is all that we have and we must live all that there is in it. And so he speaks powerfully against coveting. And the consequences of going down that way is you will be destroyed. And that is in reality, a faithful reading of Micah chapter 1. But Micah chapter 1 is followed by Micah chapter 2. And if we were to read through all of Micah in one go we would see that my guest sort of has three sections, thankfully actually broken up into the chapters quite nicely, where you see chapter 1, judgment, chapter 2, hope, chapter 3, judgment, chapter 4, hope, chapter 5, judgment, chapter 6, hope. And next week we will go to the hope of uh, chapter 2, of how God is going to rebuild and lead these people. But actually I want to go somewhere else first. And I want to go to a place where we hear how people responded to this prophecy. Because the Lord God, he wants us to hear the accusation, to see the consequences of sin, to mourn the reality of it, and then he wants us to fear him. Have a right fear of me, and you will live. Let's turn to Jeremiah. Let's see how the king Hezekiah responded. Jeremiah chapter 26. Chapter 26, which on page... Eight hundred and sixty three Jeremiah twenty six on page eight hundred and sixty three. Eight hundred and sixty three, that's Jeremiah twenty six. So this, uh, in Jeremiah, here, this is people, the people of God looking back on how Hezekiah responded. Um, verse 17. Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of people, Micah of Meresheth, that's the Micah we've just been reading, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will will become a heap of rubble. The temple, hill, a mound, overgrown with thickets. And those are words directly from um, Micah chapter 3. And this is then the important bit in 19. Did Hezekiah king of Judah, or anyone else in Judah, put him to death? Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favor? And did not the Lord relent, so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against them? Hezekiah was one of those three kings who heard the warning of Micah. He heard it and he woke up. He feared the Lord. He sought his favor and the Lord relented so that he could live. Now we know, we know that the story of this people, that future kings will not do so well. But in this moment, this is Hezekiah's response. He heard He sought the Lord, he feared the Lord, and he lived. He lived. And what does it mean for us to fear the Lord? Well, on one side, Micah and many other passages in Scripture creates this image of God and wants us to understand that he is the one who is over all as creator, that he can use the mighty mountains as steps that he can create the mighty mountains to to, to become like wax and melt beneath him. We are meant to have an image of our God as creator and just sense the majesty of who he is in his creative power. And we're meant to sense the glory of him and the right that he has to come to speak into our lives, to, to call sin a sin, to speak how that we can live so that we can flourish. And to be the glorious judge who upholds justice. We are given that sense here in Micah 1. But we're also given a sense in in the other chapters of Micah and throughout the scripture of of another equally true side to who God is. We're meant to be overwhelmed by God as a redeemer. Because as Hezekiah, as he repented, the Lord relented. And the Lord relented because... Of his redemptive aims. Because God is a father who loves his children and who wants his children to be at one with him, to be at peace with him. And God is a father who loves his children so much that God the Father will send God the Son to die to save us and to take our punishment and our place. And actually the act of God the Father sending God the Son. When men stand in a sense of just awe at that. Just be amazed at that. And to have a right fear of God is to be overwhelmed by God the Creator and to be overwhelmed by God the Redeemer. And there's a theologian called Michael Reeves who in a book on um, the fear of the Lord called Rejoice and Tremble uh, he he. he, saw, he He says, this is why we use that language of fear. Why it's right to use the language of fear. The trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of the saint's love for and enjoyment of all that God is. We fear the Lord because there's an intensity to it. Intensity to his creative power. And intensity to his love that a trembling it's the only right response to the entirety of who he is. And that means God today, as we read through Micah and as we meditate on it, he is asking us Do you fear me? Do you fear me? Have you heard these words of accusations? Do you see the consequences of sin? Are you mourning the outcome? And do you fear me? Do you fear me? Because sin is bad for us as individuals. It leads us down dark paths and it's spiraling and are spiraling in these circles of vice. And actually the further we commit it, then that is not the way for our own flourishing as human beings. But sin is also bad for us collectively as human beings the further as we as individuals, the further society goes down and away from the living God, that is, that is the place where actually it is the weak and the marginalized who will be further trampled, and it is the poor who will be further pushed out, and it is the wealthy and the strong who will be further lifted high, and the further we spiral into sin as an individual and as a society, it will be bad for all of us. And God wants what is best for us, He wants us as individuals to flourish and to succeed. And so he tells us what's good for us and how we should live. And he's too just not to act. For when we don't do that, and for our words and for our actions and for our deeds, we cause misery in other people's lives. He's too good not to act on that. And so that is why he brings his accusation. And that is why he tells us of his judgment, so that we might hear, so that we might look, so that we might mourn, and so that we might fear him. So do you fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? Do you tremble at all that he is? Let's meditate on these words from Micah for a moment and then I'll close in prayer. dearest God, king of kings and lord of lords help us to be men and women who hear your word, who hear your words of accusation against sin and wickedness and cruelty help us to mourn all that sin has done in our lives and in other people's lives and society help us father God to see you for who you are in your entirety to tremble at your creative majesty, to tremble at your redeeming love. Help us, Father God, to come to your throne of grace and mercy and find forgiveness for all that we are, forgiveness for all that our society has done, and help us live in the light of your truth, in the power of your words, and for the glory of your Son. So that through our lives and through our community, we might build something which is beautiful and loving and good and Christ-like. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.